Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. And another one that I see a lot in terms of client work is maybe where breastfeeding has been really difficult or hasn't worked out as, as the mother has intended it to, you know, for whatever reason that might be. And then introducing solids becomes kind of fraught. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Well, hello, sending a warm welcome to all levels of anxious, worried parents on today's podcast episode. It feels so weird to say that I'm excited about anxiety, but I am literally over the moon about our guest today. I don't think I've ever worked harder to get an interview, and I am so excited to announce we finally have Joe Cormack on the podcast. So we've been trying for two years to get Joe on the podcast. She is a PhD researcher and child feeding specialist. She's an award-winning author, creator of an amazing judgment-free feeding community. And Joe is based in England, but the impact of the work that she is doing about the psychology of feeding and picky eating and pressure in the feeding relationship, it is certainly having a global impact. And I am so grateful that Joe's here today to talk about overcoming anxiety in the feeding relationship. Now, in this interview, she's gonna get real about what parents and caregivers do, it's almost always inadvertent, but we're doing a lot of things we may not be even aware of that's pressuring our child to eat. So Joe's gonna share some activities that we as parents and caregivers can utilize right now to help check ourselves as we work with our own kids as they learn to become independent eaters. Joe Cormack is very big in the whole responsive feeding space. So she'll be explaining a little bit about that and how you can use some of her responsive feeding techniques and methods that you've probably been employing during breastfeeding or bottle feeding, but a lot of parents lose sight of as they transition to solid foods, and she is not going to let that happen. So tons of great resources shared in this episode. I know I was like scribbling down notes left and right as she was going through these different frameworks and tools and questionnaires. So I'm going to link all of Joe's tools, her surveys, her research articles, everything about anxiety in the feeding relationship on the show notes for this episode, which you guys can find at blwpodcast.com slash 214. One thing I want to ask you from the outset, though, is there's this part of the interview, it's towards the beginning, where Joe is explaining this current research study that she's working on with her team about pressure and feeding, and they're recruiting a 1,000 parents of children age 2 to 12 
to participate in and answer a short survey. So I would love, love, love if a ton of you guys could complete Joe's survey and we can help return the love because she is showing us a ton of love by sharing her knowledge, her expertise, and a lot of really valuable information. Like this is just a crash course in anxiety management and feeding and an overview of all the research that's been done. I think you guys are gonna love it. She spent a ton of time working on the episode and her responses. So if you do have a child age two to 12, could you please, please, please go fill out Joe's survey. It will only take you a minute and it's linked at blwpodcast.com forward slash 214. So with no further ado, I am so excited to introduce Joe Cormack, who is here talking about overcoming anxiety in the feeding relationship. Hi, Katie. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation. I feel like we've been trying to put it together forever. So I have a lot of questions to ask you. But before we get into the questions, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and what type of population you work with and what inspires you to keep doing the work you're doing? My background is in therapy, as in psychotherapy. So I work with pediatric feeding challenges very much from a relational perspective. These days, actually, I have more of a supervisory role. So rather than hands-on work with clients, I'm mostly focusing on my academic research and on training professionals. But I have a colleague, Dr. Hazel Walstenholm, who leads the majority of my clinical cases. I'm there in the background and we also work with an RD and sometimes where needed, we'll we'll work with um, OTs as well. So it's a kind of team approach, all telehealth. Yeah, I've been doing it for, for a long time now. It's great. I love it. And I know you recently completed your PhD, which congratulations on that. That's a huge accomplishment. Thank you. And we had tried to do this interview a number of times, but you're like, I have to finish this and that and that. So I kept <laughs> I mean, no. harassing you because I am. I first became familiar with your work from Dr. Roel, who's been on the podcast talking about extreme picky eating. And then a number of your other colleagues that you've published with, like, you have to have Joe on, you have to have Joe on. I'm like, I know I'm trying, but she's working on her PhD. So congratulations. The research that you're doing right now, you mentioned the team that you work with. Is there anything you can share particularly about the research that you're doing? One of the studies that I'm working on now, um, I'm quite excited about, it's called the, the Catchy uh, Farm is the name, really catchy title, short for the Feeding Anxiety Measure. And this is something that um, I'm doing with my colleague Hazel and another colleague, Dr. Caroline Horton. And what we're looking at is whether we can validate an assessment tool to measure parental anxiety in relation to feeding. Because we know that anxiety has such an impact on how parents approach feeding, how parents feel about children's eating behaviours. And we think that if clinicians and researchers can measure that, actually we'll be much better placed to, to serve families. So that's something we're working on now. And I don't know if, if any of your audience wants to help me. We're very much looking for participants. We're trying to get a really big sample. We're aiming for a thousand parents to complete our online questionnaire. From around the world or do they have to be from the UK? Around the world. Oh, and it doesn't matter whether the children are typical eaters or even feeding tube reliant. It doesn't matter what the child's eating behaviours are like. The only criteria really are that they're aged between two and 12 years old. Okay, I'm going to put a link to the recruitment tool that you have on the show notes for this episode. So if you guys go to blwpodcast.com and search anxiety, it would be awesome if you could help Joe out with her research. I think that's so important because I know the term anxiety, especially in parenting and in particular in motherhood, gets used a lot. And yet, yeah, how do we measure anxiety? It seems to be such a subjective thing. I know I say we share a lot of videos of babies gagging to teach parents that 
gagging is a natural and necessary part of learning how to eat. And that while it's uncomfortable to watch, and it's certainly uncomfortable for your baby as they're learning how to eat, it's so important to recognize that a baby can recover from a gag on their own. And so when parents watch videos of other babies gagging and recover on their own, it gives them confidence in their baby's ability to do the same. So we have people give us feedback like, oh my gosh, this helped lower my anxiety so much. But it'd be so interesting to be able to quantify objectively what that means and where you came from and where you are now. Absolutely. And it will also help us identify parents who might be at risk of struggling with feeding if they're already likely to be feeling anxious about it. It's not like there's a shortage of things to be anxious or nervous about as a new parent. But then when it becomes the time to start introducing solid foods to your baby around six months of age, I was curious if you had any tips for parents and caregivers about how they can manage their anxiety because their baby is building a relationship with food. And this is an important transition, but sometimes as parents, we kind of get in the way of our baby's progress. So what can we do if we are feeling anxious about this transition? Wow, I have so much to say on this. I think, first of all, anticipate it. And that can happen maybe before that six-month point when people are starting to think about introducing solids. It can happen almost as sort of preparation. I would advise parents to think about possible contributors to anxiety. So I don't know, you could ask yourself a question like, how do you feel about food generally? What's your relationship with food like? If it's perhaps a little bit difficult, there's a, a capacity there for that to spill out into feeding babies. Do nutrition and health loom large for you? But also even looking back and thinking, how was your upbringing in relation to food? And then looking at the history, has there been a tricky start? Because for many parents, if, for example, a baby's born premature, maybe they've had um, a sort of early time where they've had to be very, very careful about how much a baby's consuming, maybe because they're they're, um, in the NICU, for example, or just come home. And that can all transplant over to that early phase of introducing solids. So I think if parents have had time to sort of stop, to process, to look for those trigger points in a really self-compassionate way, but just asking the question, if there has been a tricky start, how could this then feed into that later feeding? And another one that I see a lot in terms of client work is maybe where breastfeeding has been really difficult or hasn't worked out as, as the mother has intended it to, you know, for whatever reason that might be. And then introducing solids becomes kind of fraught. So because there's already a lot of, of difficult emotions connected with feeding. So I would advise parents to just anticipate in terms of their own personal experience whether there might be some possible contributors to anxiety about early feeding. Other suggestions, in the actual face of that worry, I would want to suggest that parents get a sense of whether it's accurate or misperceived. We talk about misperceived worries a lot in the world of of feeding. So imagine that a parent is worried the baby is underweight, or a parent is worried that, that the baby's just starting off with solids and a parent is starting to feel that they're not confident about their nutritional intake. First thing is, we need to think about, is that something that does need to be worried about or not? And I don't know if you come across um, the work from Byron Katie. No, I'm not familiar. So it's a really nice set of questions that can help anybody work through something they're worried about. And it's something that I think is really nice to share with parents if they are feeling anxiety and they're recognising that anxiety. Question one, you say to yourself, is it true? So let's say I'm giving my baby all these different foods and I'm seeing most of them are all over the floor and I'm starting to worry that they're not going to be adequately nourished. 
So I ask the question, is it true? And I really, really think about that. And then let's say I say, I think, yes, it is true. Yes, they can't be adequately nourished. That whole meal is on the floor. And then I move to question two, which is, is it absolutely true? So I'm really sort of pushing myself here. Do I know that this is true? And just to take a pause for a second, if it's nutrition that we're worried about, there might be ways and means of assessing it. If a parent is really genuinely worried that the baby's intake is is not as it should be, perhaps they need to to consult with an RD and have an objective professional assessment of what's going on. Because nine times out of 10, it's all probably going to be fine. But where parents are really worried, I think they do need to properly get to the bottom of, is there a need to be worried or not? And then jumping back into these four questions, the third question is, how do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? So this is helping parents then to sort of shift into an examination of what behaviours follow that worry, because it could be if you're worried about your baby's nutrition, maybe that's the point at which you would start to not push, but encourage them to, to eat and suddenly that attunement is going because you're feeling worried. They know you're feeling worried. And then the final question is, who would you be without the thought? And it sounds like a really big question. It's incredibly helpful for supporting people to imagine themselves into a world without that worry. And these four questions, widely, there's loads on the internet. Byron Katie's work's really um, popular. But these four questions can be a very powerful way of just helping somebody process a worry. So just to summarise, because it's a a huge area, isn't it? How how do we deal with anxiety? First thing, anticipate it. Do that work maybe even before you've even started thinking about solids. Are there any contributors to anxiety in your personal history, in your baby's personal history, in your relationship with food? Second, get a sense of whether your worries are accurate or whether they might be misperceived. And then try just going down that pathway using that model called the work where you test out, is this true? Is this absolutely true? And then experimenting with what would it be like not to have this worry? Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I love that question. What would it be like to not have this worry? You mentioned that so much of the worry is about nutrition. And of course, you know, registered dietitians and pediatric dietitians are there if you need them. And you said nine times out of 10, I, I feel the same way. Anecdotally, nine times out of 10, what parents are worried about, it's not time to worry about that yet. At six and seven months of age, of course, the majority of baby's nutrition is still coming from breast milk or formula. We can't possibly expect the baby to be able to meet their nutrition needs with food when they don't even know how to eat food. And that's why getting education about starting solids and infant feeding from credentialed resources is so important because otherwise, if you're just watching social media, you think, well, that baby's eating all of that food and my baby's not doing it. So my baby's not getting enough. And you go sometimes down this hole of anxiety that could be completely avoided if you'd had the appropriate education at the right time. Absolutely, absolutely. Being informed is so key because then you don't feel unnerved when things don't go in the way that you might have imagined they would. Okay, I loved your mention about addressing anticipation and we always encourage 
parents ahead of time. They are very familiar with Amy Brown's work also out of the UK regarding choking and that there's no higher risk of choking with a baby led approach compared to traditional spoon feeding if parents are educated about reducing choking risk. And so we teach them, here's how you make the food safe. However, in the very rare event that your baby does have a choking incident, you should know basic CPR skills. CPR saves lives. So one thing you can do ahead of time is to take a CPR course so that you would know what to do in the event that your baby chokes. That's one piece of the puzzle. So I'm totally on board with you for the ahead of time information. But when let's say, you know, now you're in the thick of it and your baby's getting most of their nutrition from breast milk or formula, but you're trying solids once or twice a day at the six and seven month mark for parents that feel like, oh my gosh, I can't do this, or this is too much. And maybe the anxiety is about choking, or maybe it's about nutrition, or maybe it's about, you know, an underlying unresolved eating disorder and mom, whatever the case may be, any tips for managing once you're actually in the thick of it? Well, I think understanding it is key. And in fact, I have a tool that might be useful for, for you to share with um, your audience if, you, if you'd like to. Oh, I'd love to. I'll link everything you mentioned. This is fabulous. You're giving us like a rundown in anxiety management on a baby-led weaning podcast. This is about the feeding legacy. And the feeding legacy is the sort of sum of influences over how we come to feeding. We all arrive at feeding with this baggage, you know, whatever that might be. And I think it's just useful to structure a conversation about what you might be bringing, where these trigger points might be, and to talk through that with a friend for some parents. If they have highlighted that there could be a particular difficulty, it could be worth speaking to a therapist. If you feel that you're very, very anxious and you don't have a, a concrete grounds for that, you know, you're not pointing to something that needs um, addressing, I think it's important to stop and take time and be really, really kind to yourself, really self-compassionate and try and Dig deep and see if, if you can trace back the origins of that worry, whether that's something to do with your baby's history or your own personal history or pressures of, from just society. I think there's a lot of pressure, you know, like you were saying with the sort of social media image of this baby's eating that and why isn't my baby eating that? That can generate anxiety in itself. It really can. I like that you mentioned the feeding legacy and analyzing what emotions we might be bringing to the feeding experience with our babies and also that babies can sense pressure and stress. And they know intuitively when you're worried as well. So we talk about, it's like, I struggle with infertility and people tell you, oh, just relax and then you'll get pregnant. It's like, you know, I tried relaxing and I'm not pregnant. Thank you very much. Like, oh, just relax and you'll be fine at the meal place. It's like, come on. I know, I know sometimes parents need a little bit more. So I'll definitely link to that tool that you mentioned in the show notes at blwpodcast.com. We had this uh, good friend of mine, she's in the San Francisco Bay Area and she's a pediatrician. Her name is Julia Nordgren, but she's also a trained chef. And she has this analogy. She calls it writing your family's food story. She was on our podcast. It's episode 88, if anyone's interested in listening to it. But she talks about you're basically starting with a blank slate, a blank book, and that you are, yes, responsible for helping to build the foundation of food, whatever that may be for your child. But you don't have to replicate the concerns or the worry or the emotion or the baggage that you have with food in your own child. And she gives parents permission to start the story from the beginning and that you're the one who's writing the story for your baby. And I love that because parents admit all the time as I don't have a great relationship with food myself and I don't want my child to feel the way about food or weight or body image that I do. And there's a lot of pressure there. Like this is my chance and tell parents, listen, you're also responsible for helping to provide them with nutrition and to make sure we're doing it safely. But there's a lot of the emotional side of it. So I love that your team is really exploring that as well, because I think it, especially in nutrition, all we talk about is calories and milligrams of 
iron and grams of fiber. And it's just so impersonal. And food is so much more than that. I think it's so important parents understand that as well. It's fundamentally social, isn't it? I mean, I think the only thing I'd add to the the concept of the blank book is to say that maybe it isn't entirely blank in that also children bring their own genetic inheritance to eating. So what's really come out of my research is just how responsible parents feel about their child's relationship with food. And yes, there's loads of good stuff that we can do to support a positive relationship with food. Of course there is. But children will have their own temperament. They'll have their own sort of um, taste bud set. So for some children, they'll simply experience bitter tastes more intensely than the, the child next to them. And I think it's important that parents see that children will eat in a way that's also guided by these genetic factors. Um, How a child eats is a mixture of environmental and genetic factors. And this is borne out when parents look at comparing how siblings eat. And you can think, well, gosh, the environment has been broadly the same. And yet these children eat really differently. So I think it is, I love the idea that you can write your own story and that you can start afresh and you don't have to replicate some of those aspects that might not have been that positive from your own childhood. I also think it's important to acknowledge that what that story you write is not the whole of it, because your child will also be bringing whatever their temperament is, their their taste buds and all these other genetic aspects of how we eat as humans. And back to the education component, it's important to understand that all children will experience some degree of food neophobia, generally starting in the second year of life. And you are not a bad mom if your child is a picky eater. And parents say, but I did baby led weaning and now my child's a picky eater. And so I teach this 100 first foods approach where we teach parents how to feed 100 different foods before the baby turns one, with the notion being that with traditional spoon feeding, babies have only had 10 or 15 foods by the time they turn one. And when you lose those 10 or 15 foods to picky eating in the second year, that becomes a very challenging child to feed. However, if the baby has 100 foods they eat and then you lose 10 or 15 to picky eating, it's not the end of the world because you're still left with 85 or 90 things. There's many, many foods out there to choose from, but it's much easier to choose if they've been exposed to them in the period when they're more likely to actually want to eat them, which we all know is not toddlerhood. So I don't want parents to walk away feeling, oh, I'm a failure if my child's picky. You must understand there's some degree of picky eating that will set in in almost every case. Absolutely. And I think, again, we keep coming back to anticipation, don't we? I think if parents understand that neophobia is normal, and sometimes it can be as early as, as 12 months even, it's to be expected. And I'm sure you've had people talk before on your podcast about the there's some theories around the origins of, of neophobia, which is that as children become mobile, so maybe 13, 14 months, this is the point at which in our cave dwelling days, they might have wandered off, picked up poisonous berries and been at risk. So there's this adaptive mechanism or so the theory goes, that children suddenly, just at the sort of point where they're starting to to walk and have that independence, decide that all they want to eat is very a narrow range of very familiar foods, often not brightly coloured, because again, those poisonous berries might be brightly coloured and often not bitter, and bitter is a sign of toxicity in nature. So you can see that some of these mechanisms might have had a protective role when we had a different kind of way of life. So I think if parents appreciate that neophobia, fear of unfamiliar foods, is something to be expected and that we usually see it at that sort of 12 months to 24 months window, if you're expecting it, it's a lot easier to handle. 
Joe, can we talk a little bit about exposures? Yes, we get feeding is relational, but I'm just curious about your thoughts as a PhD researcher on the stats you always hear floating around. You know, baby needs to see a new food X number of times before they like or accept it. I'm just curious, is that something you think personally is important for parents to know X number of times? Or do we just want to reinforce the idea that, hey, you can't just show a food to a baby once and expect that they're magically going to know how to eat it and love it? Any thoughts on the numerical side of those stats? Okay, so this was actually the most important finding in my doctoral study was about exposures. It's widely, widely known, isn't it, that the importance of multiple exposures. But in my study, the women I was speaking to, they were using exposure theory as the basis for non-responsive feeding practices. And this is actually big because, yeah, because these were people who were trying to do their absolute best by their child. Because, as I said, they were a sample of, it was a subclinical sample, so they were people who'd gone to their healthcare provider seeking help for feeding challenges, picky eating, avoidant eating, however we label it. So they were making their child eat or try foods because they thought it was the right thing. They thought it was a means to the end and they thought they were helping their child. So I was finding that if women are using this knowledge that we need to be exposing to um, children to food multiple times as their grounds for what we would all agree when you look at the research into the impact of pressure on child eating behaviour, you can see that there, there was a huge, huge problem here. So I looked at a few examples of guidance for fussy and inverted commas or picky toddlers and all of that guidance. And this is from things like the National Health Service in the UK or um, the NCT, which is the National Childbirth Trust. So this is not just random blogs. This is fairly you know, official advice. And there would be information sheets and so on. Every single one said that if your child is not, is rejecting foods, maximize exposures. By all means possible, right? Yeah. So they were quoting different numbers ranging from the kind of eight to 20. And yes, we have many studies with different numbers, some in- interesting data implying that age is a factor in in how many exposures are needed. But the point is that this guidance was saying, if your child is a picky eater, hey, remember, did you know you need to give them X number of exposures? But they didn't define what the exposure entailed. And neither did they talk about the socio-emotional climate of the exposure, how that felt for the child. So parents in my study had come across information like this, it's almost become part of the sort of popular parenting canon, really well known. And they were using that theory, they were clinging to it, seeing it as the right thing, the right way to get their child the best start in life possible. And when you actually go back to the original studies, this is not an error that they're making. The original academic sources do almost all make the point that the socio-emotional climate of the exposure matters. But that has been lost in translation. So we see parents, and I can only really speak to people using exposure theory in the context of perceiving a problem because that was my sample. But we're seeing parents drawing on these rules that children need to be exposed to things X number of times and using it as a grounds to push those exposures, which actually has the opposite effect. So I talk about autonomy supportive exposure just as a way of helping parents think, is this an exposure to a food that has compromised the child's autonomy or not? Who is in control here? Does the child want to interact with food or have I somehow pushed it? So 
for me, I think what you said earlier, the idea that we just keep on offering in a relaxed way, ideally because we're eating it and the food is just there, that's an autonomy supportive exposure. Whereas if there's an expectation that the child's going to interact with the food, then this can tip over into what would academically be called pressure to eat. And we know unequivocally that pressure to eat contributes to problems with eating, it makes eating now, worse. If I could ask a very leading question, as a dietitian specializing in baby-led weaning, I would say that the greatest autonomous supportive exposure in infant feeding would be allowing your baby to feed themselves, which is baby-led oh, weaning. Yeah. Okay. So, Joe, when you mentioned your PhD work and you were studying a sample of parents who were potentially using exposure theory as a basis for non-responsive feeding practices, what is an example of a non-responsive feeding practice past breastfeeding? So once we're involving solid foods. That's a great question. It can be really such a range. And different people will give you a different answer to this question. For me, I think that responsive feeding is really about genuine autonomy. So you are letting your child make their own discoveries about food and not persuading them and not encouraging them to eat. And I know that's quite countercultural. I don't even recommend that parents praise children for eating. So it really is just a social experience that children can engage with. Non-responsive feeding then, it might look like spoon feeding when um, the child is not welcoming that. And I know you've had Marsha Dunklein on your podcast and she has this great concept of a positive tilt where we're looking for that the child moving towards the food, the food moving towards the child in this sort of synchrony as opposed to the child is moving backwards and the food is moving towards them. So that sort of overriding of the child being the one in the driving seat, if you like. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. When you mentioned some kind of extreme reactions beyond, I mean, I call it force feeding, but I'm sure there's a much more politically correct way to say that. What other examples of non-responsive feeding might one be engaged in if they're not aware of it? Well, in, in my sample, the children being older, it wasn't really physical intervention. It was much more that parents were insisting that children ate. Sometimes they were withdrawing attention or certain positive things that the child wanted or or. On the other hand, they might have been trying to persuade a child to eat by saying, if you try this, then you can have this. And actually, in some cases, it was to the point where children were, were vomiting because they were under such pressure. And it was shocking to me. I have seen this in, in my clinical work, but to delve so deep into these experiences with a sort of academic hat on was really eye-opening. So non-responsive feeding is fundamentally compromising a child's autonomy. There's other aspects to it. Autonomy is all of it. But when we're talking about who has the power, this is what we come back to is that principle of autonomy. So ideally, children would be able to make their own decisions about whether they were going to eat food, whether they were going to finish the food, 
whether they were going to engage with it rather than the parents saying, oh, try this or you might like this or how about a lick of this, etc. And Joe, I know we're on a baby led weaning podcast. So most of the audience here has children or works with babies somewhere between six and 12 months of age. But what I think is so unique about baby led weaning is that it's one of the few things that appeals to a second time parent. A lot of parents are like, I figured it all out, except I'm dealing with this picky eater or this picky toddler or this food averse, whatever you call it, older child. And I'd like to try something different with my next child. So I know that a lot of your work has focused on older children as well. You've developed your own responsive model called the emotionally aware feeding. Curious if you could just explain to us what that is and how it's become an effective way to help with anxiety during the feeding journey, even past infancy. Sure. So responsive model really based at, aimed at parents of, of children from two upwards up to adolescence. It's drawing on my specialism, which is the psychological relational elements of feeding. But the idea is it can be used alongside any other specialism. So a dietitian could use this, an occupational therapist could use it, a speech and language pathologist could use it. It's about, well, loads of bits to it, but to give you a bit of a nutshell, giving parents the basics of responsive feeding, that education piece, alongside helping them gain insight into their own specific potential pitfalls, if you like. So we do a lot of work before we even talk about new foods. We do lots of work helping parents understand their own responses. And this thing you said earlier, Katie, you said something about you can't just tell a parent, well, I'd like you to stop feeling anxious now every time that your child gags and that they say, oh, brilliant. Yes, I will. Great advice. It doesn't work like that. That comes into play here where with EAF, it's about equipping parents with the tools and the space to process their own responses, understand where they might have, they might have come from be compassionate to themselves so they can move away from guilt and self-blame. Because when parents are struggling with feeding, the amount of guilt and self-blame that creeps in is just overwhelming. And we have to get beyond that in order to, to move forward, really. So we spend a lot of time talking all this through. Also, another string to it is spending a lot of time working on creating an environment where children can feel intrinsically motivated to explore new foods. It's just not about making them do it or getting them to do it or encouraging them to do it. It's about the opportunities being there when they're ready for it. So there's there's quite a few sort of different stages to it. But I think what makes it different from some other approaches is the amount of time spent getting that groundwork right. So we usually work over a six-month period with clients and it might not be till sort of months five or something where we even have a conversation about new foods. Interesting. And I think setting the groundwork, you've talked so much about anticipation today that with your baby, when you're starting solid foods, if you can come to terms with the fact that the goal here is not to get or make the baby eat. I think we've had every international feeding expert on here. We're all saying the same things using different words, but hearkening back to Alan Satter and the division of responsibility and feeding theory. If Whenever you're feeling that anxiety rise up, we tell parents, what's your job? We just did an episode with Marsha called Stay in Your Lane. Like, what are our rules? It's not your job to make your baby eat this arbitrary amount of pureed processed food that's been stuffed into a pouch. That's not your job. You're responsible for other things for sure. But I think that helps lift this burden of, as you said, you know, the guilt and the shame and the self-blame. If you realize, hey, that wasn't even my job to begin with. My job here, even from your baby's first bites, it's hard with breastfeeding. A lot of parents are coming into solid foods having struggled immensely with breastfeeding and they already feel that they're behind the eight ball. Like it's already gone all wrong for me and I've ruined this child, you know, for the indelible, horrible things for the rest of their life. And we always say that's not 
the case. Your child needs to learn how to eat and it's not your job to make them eat. And for a lot of parents, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Now, of course, that does not alleviate all anxiety, but it can just, I think we start to have these conversations of let's anticipate what our ultimate goal is here. And it is not to force the child to eat X, Y, or Z amounts of foods. And then let's translate that to what that actually looks like in reality. And this is a meal where attunement is prioritized. So it's about connection and it's about modeling and it's about just all being, and I'm not talking about a family meal that has to have, you know, two parents, a grandma. It can just be one parent and the child connecting, eating together, um, rather than the, the whole sort of focus of the meal being trying to direct how the child engages with food. Exactly. And you talked about power and control because, I mean, that's a whole separate episode, but there's so much of that at play, especially so many of us grew up in an era where you eat everything on your plate because they're, you know, starving children in Africa. Not to be politically incorrect, that's what my parents actually said to me. And I know many parents grew up with variations of that. My dad grew up in a family where there was not enough food to feed the seven kids. So you ate really, really fast or you didn't eat at all. Like it's not pleasurable to sit down and eat a meal with him. (laughs) And he's not patient when they're feeding themselves because he's like, this takes so long. It's like, well, dad, the ultimate goal here is not to get like the food into them as fast as possible. He said, well, that's what it was for me when I grew up. I mean, there's there's so so many layers coming in to- There really is. And it's so socially normal to encourage a child with eating. Say, well done, you've tried that. Oh, amazing. Or to say, hey, you'll like this. Or to say, well, you won't know if you like it because you haven't tried it. All of these phrases we hear, and they're just not helpful. It's much better to just be there. The food is there, you're there, and you can chat about your day. And I appreciate researchers like you saying what language is not helpful. I think that's very important. A lot of people are scared to say that, oh, I don't want to be perceived as shaming the parents or judging the parents. It's like, we can talk about positive language all day long. For me, it's very hard. It's a foreign language. I have seven small kids. For a while, we had seven kids, three and under. We were doing baby led weaning with twins. We had quadruplet toddlers. It was awful. If someone just said, don't say that, I would have really appreciated it. Don't tell them to eat everything. Don't say good job when you eat. Like You should have a whole training on what not to say based on your research. Because positive language is one thing, but we need to know what negative language to avoid as well. Exactly. And I think if we always start from this place of, of assuming that parents are just doing the best that they, they can with the information they have, so it's not a judgment. And also, it's absolutely socially normal. So to say to a parent, look, don't try and persuade your child to take this one bite or a no thank you bite or whatever else it might be of this food. It's not judging them for doing that because to do that was just to fit in with everything that's around them and probably what they experienced themselves. I love that you call it a no thank you bite. We have people in the United States called a polite bite. There's nothing polite about making them take a bite of something that they weren't going to. I hate it. I know. I know. But again, it's hard. You can't get on social media and say, don't do this because then people will blow you up. But it's like, it's so important to hear from- I just do it anyway. I know you do. (laughs) You guys definitely follow Joe. I'll link to your page on ours. I really appreciate your insight because you are doing the research as a PhD credential professional studying these behaviors because it isn't black and white. You know, people make fun of nutrition science. Oh, it's such a soft science. It's like, well, at least there's measurable quantities of things in iron and carbohydrates and fiber. The area that you're in, that's kind of no man's land. And yet we do it three times a day. Like there's clearly a science to what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the pressure literature is really overwhelming. And I'm I'm just in the middle, actually. <laughs> You're overwhelmed by the pressure literature. I love that. I, I know, I am. I am. I've, well, I was very overwhelmed by it <laughs> a few months back. I'm currently trying to um, publish a, a study that I've just pulling it together, really, where I've reviewed all of the studies that look at picky eating and pressure to eat. 
and there was 53 of them so that took a while and finding them took a while so but what I found you know the evidence is overwhelming there's just there's no debate in academia about whether pressure which I think is maybe better framed as encouragement or persuasion because pressure just sounds horrible Pressure is what but encouragement sounds, it. but encouragement sounds good. There we go with the semantics. I would think encouragement right, is a right, good right. thing. Yeah. And this is exactly what's what, what my paper concludes, really, is that we need more clarity on what this constitutes. And we need to appreciate that for different children, they will experience pressure differently because they all come to eating with their own sort of unique personalities and, and preferences and so on. So for one child, like I might say, I mean, I can't believe I, I, I should be saying this because I'm constantly telling parents not to encourage children to eat. But I might say to my nine-year-old, oh, have you tried this? But that's because I know her relationship with food. She's a typical eater. She's very relaxed about foods. And for her, she'll probably think, oh, no, I haven't. Oh, I might do. Or she might not. And that's fine. Whereas another child, if I was to say, have you tried this? That could send them to a tailspin. To a real genuine, yeah, it could be like a really stressful experience for them to hear that. And I would say as the mom, did you try this? Because I freaking spent 20 minutes making it for you guys for dinner. <laughs> like, you know, there's there's so many reasons why certain words come out of our mouth. And I feel like we're just living in an era where, you know, anything you say is, can be perceived as incorrect. So again, yeah, thank you. that's true too. Thank you for the insight though, because words do matter and words around food matter. And we all make mistakes when it comes and to I those words. And I think we can express it quite simply as well. I think it's a, it's a difficult thing to actually do to stop encouraging eating. But it's a simple concept. And that's why I'm sort of feeling okay about saying to parents, look, just don't do this, because it conveys the simple concept that we just need to leave children to manage their own eating, really, you know, within the context that you set up. I love that. And I think about like toddlers, they getting them to dress, for example. The goal here is that you eventually get dressed. But I'm not going to comment on every single button as you're like literally parents are narrating. They are play by play of every single bite the baby's eating. And sometimes they say, hey, can you do me a favor, especially the parents I work with, we're filming here. Can you just not talk for 15 minutes? And the mom's like, really? And she's like, oh, this is actually kind of nice. Like, yeah, it's a break. Let the baby do their thing. Don't wipe them. Don't touch them. Don't move them. Don't talk to them. Chill out. You, Let them learn how to eat. It to sort of experience that as an adult, wouldn't it? And have somebody kind of swoop in and wipe your face. Every how would seconds. you feel if you're trying really to learn well how to eat? Oh, on this lady's attacking you with a wet wipe, right? Exactly. Oh, Joe, I could literally talk to you all day long. I know we probably need to wrap it up. I've written down like five other episode ideas, so I'm sorry I have to <laughs> ask you back. I'm going to link to all of the tools and the resources that you shared on the show notes page for this episode at blwpodcast.com. But Joe, tell our audience, where can they go to learn more about you and your team and the work that you guys are doing? Sure. Okay. So for parents, you can find more about my work at joecormack.com. And I have my blog there, loads and loads of articles for parents. I know quite a few professionals listen to your podcast. If you're a professional listening, you can find me at Responsive Feeding Pro, which I run with Dr. Katia Rowell. And we have, it's kind of a hub for responsive feeding therapy training for professionals from all sorts of disciplines, anyone working in feeding. It's, um, yeah, so I think that's probably the best places to point you to. I'm on Instagram. I'm a bit rubbish on it, to be honest. So oh, I'm finding me there. I love your Instagram and that's how I eventually got in touch with you because you were a very busy lady and very hard to get in touch with. So thank you for <laughs> doing the interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all of the work that you're contributing to this space, all of your colleagues. I think it's so important and it's helpful to us as parents because nobody was born knowing how to do all this. And it's important that we hear all the different sides of how we might consider doing it as we help our babies transition to solid foods. Absolutely. Thanks, Katie.
Wow, I feel like we just got a crash course in anxiety management around mealtimes. I mean, lots of really practical tips for starting solid foods. But I think a lot of things that for those of you with older kids, I know is like taking notes frantically, like, oh, I definitely say that, or I could do more of this, or wow, I didn't realize I was doing that. Joe really is the expert as far as psychology in pediatric feeding goes. So I know she mentioned a lot of different tools. This was a very, very layered episode, you might say. So I am going to put everything on the show notes for this episode. It's at blwpodcast.com slash 214. I'll put up links to Joe's materials, her emotionally aware feeding model, also her feeding legacy tool. I was also thinking maybe if you guys all complete the survey that she asked about, remember she's recruiting a thousand responses from parents of children aged two to 12. Like it would be so cool if a lot of them came from this episode and maybe she'll come back and talk about the feeding legacy, because I really, really want to learn more about that. So, you know, basically, what are we bringing to the table from our experiences? And how does that affect our children's abilities to learn how to eat in infancy, and then also to continue to foster their relationship with food as they get older? So go to blwpodcast.com slash 214. Please explore some more of Joe's materials. And if you are a parent of a child age two to 12, please fill out her survey, which will be linked there as well. Thanks so much for listening, guys. See you next time. Friends, are you looking for a new podcast? Maybe something you can share with your littles? Something that has some storytelling in it? Well, then look no further. We have Storytime with Philip and Mommy, where my son and I sit and discuss all the great books that you might love while we read them. So, Little Golden Books, Berenstain Bears, and even the new classics like Bluey. We sit down, we read, we discuss, and we have so much fun doing it. Come and join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.